Hi, I'm Henry Bear. And I'm Tyler Johnson. And you're listening to The Doctor's Art, a podcast that explores meaning in medicine. Throughout our medical training and career, we have pondered, what makes medicine meaningful? Can a stronger understanding of this meaning create better doctors? How can we build healthcare institutions that nurture the doctor-patient connection? What can we learn about the human condition from accompanying our patients in times of suffering? In seeking answers to these questions, we meet with deep thinkers working across healthcare, from doctors and nurses to patients and healthcare executives, those who have collected a career's worth of hard-earned wisdom. Probing the moral heart that beats at the core of medicine, we will hear stories that are by turns heartbreaking, amusing, inspiring, challenging, and enlightening. We welcome anyone curious about why doctors do what they do. Join us as we think out loud about what illness and healing can teach us about some of life's biggest questions. From ancient myth to science fiction, humans have long been fascinated by the idea of transcending the limits of our natural lifespan. But what does modern medicine say about the practical, actual possibilities of extending human life? Joining us to explore this tantalizing question is Dr. Tony Weiss-Coray, a neuroscientist and director of the Phil and Penny Knight Initiative for Brain Resilience at Stanford University. While his research focuses on age-related cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease, his work has involved identifying the biological age of various organs and its implications on various diseases, and treating old animals with the blood of young animals to halt and even reverse aging of the body. Over the course of our conversation, we not only discuss the mysterious mechanisms underlying neurodegeneration, but also venture beyond the lab to explore the philosophical and ethical dimensions of life extension. We ask, how does our understanding of aging affect our perception of self and identity? Is aging a disease to be treated? What are our social and moral obligations when it comes to prolonging life or enhancing brain function? Is immortality even desirable? Tony, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. We look forward to having you explore with us the answers to some of these questions. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To start us off, can you share with us what brought you to neuroscience? Specifically, what drew you to study aging and neurodegeneration? Yeah, that's a, a long story that sort of came about randomly to some extent. You know, I, when I was little, I always wanted to be either a farmer or a scientist. Maybe you've seen the show, The Biggest Little Farm, you know, a farm that has all kinds of animals and plants and everything. That was always what I wanted to study. And I got into university studying biology sort of very broadly. And then really what piqued my interest the most was immunology. And I did a PhD in studying the human immune system, mostly in cell culture, but wanted to get into animal models. And it's interesting that immunologists have often used the brain to study the immune system in models for multiple sclerosis or models for, you know, viral diseases, encephalitis and so forth. And so a lot of immunologists actually use the brain to to do their work. And so that's how I ended up in neuroscience. I joined the lab of Leonard Mewkey, who is now the director of the Gladstone Institute of Neurological Disease at UCSF. And he's an MS physician by training. And so we made some of the first mouse models that express cytokines in the brain, then studied them in the context of neurodegenerative disease models, uh, mouse models for Alzheimer's disease, for example. But as I kept studying these models, became apparent that, first of all, you know, they, they only mimic aspects of the human disease, of course, and you don't really learn why people develop Alzheimer's disease or other neurodegenerative diseases. Um, you can learn aspects of the pathology, maybe. And so I got really interested in trying to find ways of studying humans and sort of the key risk factor for all these diseases, which is aging. That, I guess that's how I ended up in, you know, aging and uh, neurodegeneration. 
So we have a wide spectrum of listeners, people who are not affiliated with medicine in any official way at all. And then for those who are affiliated, everything from pre-medical students who are thinking about going into medicine all the way through to attendings of all different stripes. But for those who may not have a deep grounding in neurology or may not have much knowledge of neurology at all, can you just talk about what is a neurodegenerative disease? Like what defines that classification of illness? So neurodegenerative diseases are diseases where cells in the brain start to die and start to degenerate. And that can manifest in diseases like Alzheimer's, where you mostly just forget things and become more and more incapacitated, that uh, eventually demented. Or it could be diseases where you lose nerve cells, neurons that control motor function, gait, and things like that. And so you become paralyzed almost. But it's a combination of diseases of the nervous system where these cells degenerate. Now with your own lab, what are some of the research questions that you're most interested in exploring? I'm really interested in understanding why some people get these age-related neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, why some people get demented and others seem to be able to just stave off aging of the brain and, and, and they're still functional. Sometimes even at age 100, there are some rare individuals with their cognition fully intact at 100 years of age. We call them resilient. And uh, I want to understand what happens in our brains as we get older and, and why some are susceptible and others are not. So I'd like to move next to a related question. And I recognize up front that this question is partly scientific and arguably partly philosophical, but I think it's important in terms of framing the rest of the conversation that we're going to have. The question that I want to ask is, what is aging? And I think that part of the reason that it's important to ask that question is precisely because the question probably doesn't come intuitively to many of us because aging, it might not occur to us to ask what aging is because aging is just what happens to the human body as it moves through time. But as you obviously know infinitely better than I do, there's been significant research over the past 20 or 30 years demonstrating that it's not quite that simple that different bodies age at different rates. And you can even make the argument that different parts of a single body may age at different rates. And so then that begs this whole host of questions about what does it mean to age? And then, of course, there's a related set of questions that then eventually spring from that, which are things like, can we speed up aging? Can we slow down aging? Could we eventually halt aging altogether? And what would that mean? And what would that look like? But to be able to explore the implications of any of that, first, we have to start with the most fundamental question, which is what does aging mean? As soon as we are conceived, some of the cells that emerge will not divide until we die. And so they're just left in our body and they have to be maintained until we die. And the process of them getting older is really what aging is. And it starts at the very beginning of when a person is conceived. It's, but we, we often think you know, aging is something that happens to all people, but really the process of aging is continuous. It takes place as we live. Um, it's an integral part of our life. And that's why, you know, some people say aging is a disease. I, I don't think aging is a disease. Then life itself is a disease because it's just part of what an organism faces. It's like anything on this planet. If you you know, get a new car, it starts to get older by the time it's finished being produced, right? It starts to age and it actually loses value. That's a different discussion. But it is exposed to the environment and that exposure to the environment is something we call aging. So one of the things, and this is a little bit taking us away from the brain specifically, but a few years ago, one of the implications of your work was that you discovered these elements in the blood of people that could indicate what their biological age was. 
as opposed to the chronological age, right? Can you tell us more about what, what that work was and what it looked like and what, what it meant to you? Yeah, so that's basically what we discovered and with many other people is, again, that as an organism ages, it changes in its composition. And we can read, actually, that change in composition related to aging in the blood. So the blood contains thousands of different molecules, and their levels change as we get older. So you might have a high level of a growth hormone that makes you grow when you're young, and you get less and less of that as you get older. But there's thousands of other molecules that change in their composition in such a way that if you give me a sample of your blood, I can pretty much tell you how old you are based on looking at thousands of other samples from people young to old. And what we found is that this composition not only tells us how old you are relatively, but whether you're slightly older than the average or slightly younger. In fact, we can even read whether your brain is a little bit older than the average population, or your kidney is older, or your heart is older. And what we find is that this difference between your actual age and that predicted biological age, we often call this an age gap, that difference is a predictor of susceptibility to disease and even mortality. So let me repeat this. What we see is, let's say we measure in your blood that your heart is two years older than it's supposed to be. Then your risk to get heart disease is about 40%, 30-40% higher to get heart disease in the coming 10 years or so. So what I'm thinking about, I mean, this is fascinating stuff. It's just we don't normally think about it. But the fact that older biological age of specific organs is related to increased risk of certain diseases, right? That, that seems to run counter. And before I, I ask this question, I want to say that I, I think I generally agree with your approach that aging should not be treated as a disease. However, the fact that your biological age, being older than you're supposed to be, is associated with risk of diseases, I can't help but think that how can you not treat aging? How can you not see aging as something to treat, to reverse, right? You're telling us that the research shows that it causes dysfunction, it causes illness, right? So how do you, how do you square those two together? Yeah, that's a great question. And it is almost a philosophical question, right? Because we are getting older as we live. It's relentless and nobody escapes death. And so that entire process, that trajectory that you get older by the day, that makes you more susceptible to almost any disease that we know. Even immune-mediated diseases, let's say, the susceptibility to get sick to a, a virus or something like that, the outcome when you're older is usually much worse than if you're younger. Your immune system is much better equipped to fight an infection when you're young than when you're old. So the immune system ages. And that's why I think some people came up with this notion that aging is a disease. But then you would have to say, well, life is a disease, right? <laughs> and it really is a question of when do age and disease go into separate ways? When is aging, when do you age and you're still healthy? And when do you get sick? And maybe what we're starting to discover is if one of your organs shows an accelerated aging trajectory. Let's say your heart starts to show it's getting older than the rest of your body. Maybe then that, you know, increased age makes it susceptible to what we then ultimately call heart disease, but it's really a manifestation of aging. And we use the disease term because we can easily see it if somebody has a heart attack, so we call it a disease. But again, the basis of the heart attack is usually age. You don't get a heart attack most often when you're young. I mean, it's very rare cases you can get it. But the older you get, the more likely you get a heart attack. So it's an extension of an abnormal trajectory of heart aging is what I would say. So yes, if we could treat that aging heart, 
when it hasn't infarcted yet, we would prevent the heart attack. I'm pretty sure. And, you know, some of the medications that we use for, you know, control lipid levels, cholesterol or hypertension, those are basically attempts to counteract the aging process of some of the systems in our body. So you've alluded to, I think, a concept that science has now begun to back up that has been in sort of the common consciousness for a long time, which is some sense that you are only as old as you feel, or maybe not only as old as you feel, but at least you are only as old as your blood or other parts of the body tell you that you are. However you want to phrase that exactly, basically what it boils down to is that there can be a gap between your chronologic age, that is how many days have you been on the planet, and your physiologic age. And so if we think about that gap potentially existing and potentially stretching in either direction, right? You can either be younger than you feel or older than you feel. I wonder if you can then talk about how much of what determines how big that gap is and the direction in which that gap extends, how much of that is due to things that lie completely outside of a person's control, i.e., you know, where the person was born, who the person's parents were, what the person's life was like when they were very young, those sorts of things. And how much of it is due to factors that are within our control? Because of course, I can imagine that many people who would be learning about related concepts, their next question would then be, are there things I can do to make myself younger, right? So the, uh, I mean, there's the sort of apocryphal search for the fountain of youth, right? Most of us probably don't think there is actually a physical fountain anymore, but certainly you can go to any health food store, you can go to Whole Foods for that matter, and find all kinds of products that either implicitly or explicitly suggest that if you use them or eat them or ingest them or whatever, that they will make you feel younger or look younger or even be younger, right? And so I guess all of this is a way of asking, how much truth is there to that idea? Are there things that we can do now that may actually physiologically make us younger? Exactly. Yeah, I'm sort of nature versus nurture. I think it's too early for us to say that because we don't have enough data we just are about to publish a study where we estimate the biological age of 11 different organs in, in living people in about five and a half thousand people. But we don't, for example, we don't have genetic information on these individuals and we don't have lifestyle information. But the field is rapidly going in this direction with large studies such as the UK Biobank, where you have hundreds of thousands of individuals where you have such information. And people are now, scientists are now starting to measure the blood of these individuals to make these models. So I think we will have better answers for your question in the future. But having said that, we certainly know from existing large-scale epidemiological studies, so where people look at what was somebody's behavior, did they exercise, or what type of diets did they use, and look at their risk for, let's say, heart disease or cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. And from all those studies, we know that you can, to some extent, influence your risk of getting these age-related diseases. Not entirely stave them off, but you can reduce your own personal risk. Again, we don't have the data in our study to show this based on these blood uh, signatures, but this is definitely what we want to do next. So I think the process that you were just describing, where you have a parent cell that is maybe capable of many things, and then it divides into daughter cells, some of which may still be capable of many things, but others of which are more, as we would say, differentiated, where they're sort of now you know, committed to a particular task. One of the questions that that begs, though, is that some of those cells, at least, are going to now become the cell that does whatever it is that that kind of cell is supposed to do, and they're going to start pursuing that function. And as they do so, they begin to age. But I guess the question then is, like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean for the one cell to kind of hang back and remain, you know, sort of the omnipotent cell that can do whatever it wants and become whatever it wants? And the other one, now that has committed itself to being a certain kind of cell and is starting to do whatever it's starting to do, like, what does it mean that that one daughter cell starts to age? Yeah. And, and you know, just, you know, to pick up on that thought, 
if you create a human, you know, the sperm and the egg cells usually are several decades old. But when they come together, they start at age zero. So nature has figured out to completely erase age. And that is, you know, the basis of what we call reprogramming of cells, where, you know, Shinya Yamanaka, who got the Nobel Prize for his work, figured out that you can take four genes, basically four switches in a cell that you can introduce into an old cell and you can make it age zero. So there are ways on a cellular level to erase aging entirely. That idea of erasing cellular age in egg and sperm is going to be bothering me for the rest of the week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but it's if you think about it, and I think it's the answer to your question, why can some cells then live for 100 years, even though they don't divide? They must have figured out a way to keep their DNA, their blueprint, intact, and they must have figured out a way to get rid of garbage and chunk that accumulates as part of their daily work they're doing. So now based off of, and this may be asking you to speculate quite a bit, but based off of your research so far, simply asking, is reversing aging a realistic goal? Like in your mind, like, are we actually going to get to a point where we can stop or reverse aging in, in a human, right? Because we're talking about cells, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Theoretically in a lab, but a human is billions of cells maybe more. I don't know the exact number. And these cells all talk to each other in very complicated ways. They influence each other in very complicated ways. And the chemical signatures are just, we don't even fully know how they work, right? So yeah, is it possible to actually reverse aging in a whole organism? Yeah, that's of course a question that a lot of people ask. And I think some you know, extrapolate from this simple experiment, the cellular experiment. It's not a simple experiment. It's extremely complicated. And I think it's the biggest biological revolution that, or discovery, uh, in my view, because aging is so an intricate part of life itself. The fact that you can reverse it, I think is just amazing. But your point is, I think, where the challenge comes, right? If you want to apply this to a whole organism, that means you have to reach the billions of cells that make up that organism and with it all the different parts. So when you do this reprogramming, then a complicated cell usually becomes a cell that is similar to, you know, a stem cell. It, we call it an induced stem cell. And so these cells have much less sophistication. They have the capacity to make very complicated cells, such as brain cells. But in order to erase the age, they, we call this de-differentiate. So they become very simple cells again. And so my guess would be that it's extremely challenging, for example, to take the sophisticated network of billions of brain cells that are highly sophisticated and make those young again without basically making them first very simple stem cells again and then growing a new brain. But what might be possible instead is that you can slow down the aging process or you might even be able to stop it by improving the maintenance processes. So those processes that usually start to accumulate damage as a cell gets older, let's say if you could stop that, and just make it very efficient for that cell to more or less stay at the age it has, you might be able to extend lifespan very, very significantly. But, you know, we're, we're far, far away from that to just, you know, be realistic. But this is sort of the only way I can see it at this point. But then also, you know, we have been proven wrong over and over in biology, you know. Certainly if you said 100 years ago that you can erase age completely or that you can even make an organism such as a mouse younger, people would have, you know, laughed you off and say, this is totally impossible. This is science fiction. But that's exactly what you have been able to do through one of your research projects, right? In the past was, this was a very sensational project. I mean, <laughs> the, the results were quite interesting and it obviously captured the uh, imagination of a lot of people. And in this project, you took 
blood from a young mouse and you circulated this blood into the, the, the system of an older mouse and you were able to, was it reverse aging or was it stop aging in the older mouse? It's a combination. And so we have now much more insight into what actually happens. So first of all, we can improve the function of the mice. We can make them functionally younger. And, you know, you can improve function by reversing aging or potentially by adding a patch to a system. And, you know, one analogy would be if you can't walk anymore, you know, upright, you can use a cane. And that cane helps you to walk better again, right? But nature just never generates a cane for you to walk. So in biology, you know, when we call these rejuvenations, sometimes it is actually that we reverse the age of a cell or of a gene backwards where it was maybe a month earlier. But sometimes we also come up with a patch that makes the system function again better And some of these patches nature actually didn't come up with. They're induced in part by, you know, the approach we use. And we have a recent example where we saw this, where we used young blood to treat old mice and then looked specifically at the brain. We looked at thousands of genes in the brain. And we also did what is called caloric restriction. So you give the mice not enough food. And many, many studies have shown across the animal kingdom that this slows the aging process or can improve function. So with both of these, less food or giving young blood, these old mice, their brains work better again. So they can better remember in a maze that we, where we test their brain function, they can perform better, more like younger mice. So we could call this rejuvenation, right? We improve their function. When we look at which genes are changed, they achieve this by completely different sets of genes and different cells that are being regenerated or rejuvenated. The young blood seems to reduce, to some extent, inflammation in the brain and induce activation of stem cells Whereas the caloric restriction has more of an effect on energy metabolism and other pathways that also improve the function of the brain. But to get back to this question of, do you make the organism younger? Yes, we make certain cells probably younger. We turn genes back to where they were earlier. But I'm not even sure if the entire cell is now younger or just aspects of that mm. cell are younger. And not the whole brain is younger, but just parts of the brain are improving the function. And this is, I think, you know, coming back to our earlier question, where the complexity comes in. Can you regenerate a whole entire organ, such as the brain, for example, at every cell level? Or do you just achieve better function by improving some parts of it And sometimes maybe even find a patch to improve the function. And that in combination causes an improvement of function. But it's not really making you younger and younger and younger. And you can go all the way to, you know, a Benjamin button where, you know, you're a child again. I, I think that's going to be extremely complicated. You know, as we're thinking about the connection between single cells and the eventually the organs that those cells make up, I think that when we think about that in terms of neuroscience, it very quickly becomes or invites some deeply philosophical inquiries. And the reason that it does that, of course, is because, you know, obviously I'm not a neuroscientist and you are, so you can correct me if I'm wrong here. But of all of the parts of the body, certainly the one that gives rise to the most pressing philosophical questions is the brain. Because my understanding is that even with all of the miracles of modern neuroscience, we don't really understand how all of the connections between all of the neurons in the brain and all of the simultaneous firing of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of those 
somehow then gives rise to what we call consciousness, right? It's one thing to do an fMRI and see that, oh, when you have this kind of experience, this part of the brain is lighting up. But it's a very different thing to say, yes, but then on top of that, you are actually assigning spiritual or metaphysical or aesthetic or whatever meaning to whatever experience you're undergoing at the time, right? And in sort of the reverse direction of that, I'm often reminded of this when I think about my mother's mother, so my maternal grandmother. She was a woman who in her time was a a genuine feminist trailblazer. She went to pharmacy school when there were, I think, two women in her class of uh, pharmacy school. She became a a well-known pharmacist in Utah where I grew up and was also a person who loved literature and opera and was incredibly intelligent and sophisticated and refined. And then just about the time that I was moving away to go to college, she began to develop uh, serious signs of Alzheimer's. And then because I was away at college, I would only come home intermittently. And as I would come home, it was like watching her consciousness be slowly erased, where she would go from sort of the fully formed, fully fleshed out person that I had always known and loved to a more and more faded version of that person until shortly before her death, she eventually died of Alzheimer's with the rest of her body mostly intact. You know, there was almost nothing left of the person that I had always known and loved. And I think this was really driven home for me when I came home one time shortly before her death. And it was just after Halloween. She was living in a, a residential a memory care unit at that time. And they had had the residents, they had helped the residents dress up for Halloween. And I'll just never forget because on her door was tacked up a photo of her from Halloween wearing this loose fitting, garish, silly looking clown suit with big floppy red shoes and this big red wig. And not that there's anything wrong with that, right? It can be fun to to be silly and whatever, but it's just that that was so not her. It was just something that she never would have chosen to wear when she had all of her faculties and watching her fade to a degree where she eventually ended up in a place where that was a decision that she made or, or was made on her behalf was really, really striking and sad. And so I guess all of that is just by way of saying, I'm not even exactly sure what the question is, except to just say that for you as a neuroscientist who studies the connections between those neurons and the firing of those synapses and and who specifically looks at the aging of the brain, could you talk about sort of what you think about that process? Yeah, that is a philosophical question. And, you know, I'm sorry to hear about your grandma, but it's unfortunately all too common. Both my father-in-law, he passed away from a form of Alzheimer's disease. And now my dad, he's 92. And, you know, he repeats himself over and over. I can't really have a phone conversation with him. And he too, I mean, he, you know, he inspired me to do what I'm doing. And he, he always said, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to. And now there's just nothing left. You wonder if you made an old brain younger you know, what aspects of yourself and your cognition would change even as part of that, right? Would your experience, experiences change? But, you know, at the same time, I think once you lose a memory, your connections that, you know, are imprinted from the understanding that neuroscientists have, you know, a wiring that makes up a thought or an experience, once that's erased, structurally, it will never come back, right? You, you can make that brain younger, but that experience will not come back. And I think, you know, once a person is demented, even if you made their body younger, you would have to figure out ways to, maybe that brain could now learn again and not forget, but it would probably not have the lifetime experiences that that individual had acquired over, you know, 70, 80, 90 years. Yeah, when I think about who I am, like what defines me, yes, there is the cognitive abilities, there is the personality, but I think fundamentally so much of what makes me me is intimately tied to my memories of my own personal experiences, the people I've spent time with, the books I've read, the the experiences I've been a part of, you know, all those things. And to me, losing those memories, I can't help but feel like that is the essence of who I am. And I see your point where 
And we, we see this, right, a lot in cases of brain injury where parts of the brain structurally are, are altered. And then once it's gone, it's gone forever. Mm-hmm. And I think so, that's why people, I think, are so obsessed these days for good reason with trying to figure out how we can prevent aging before we get to that point where we start losing memory, right? That's why we have all these people who are at a much early age trying to figure out how they can reverse aging of their own bodies, right? And so you're telling us about these mouse models of successfully slowing down the effects of aging, if not slowing down actual aging itself. So then here is the next logical billion-dollar question, which is, does it work in humans? Right? I know certainly there have been some sensational stories of people who have tried this, companies who have tried to sell young blood as therapy to individuals. And based off of your observations, is there potential here? I think there is the potential that we can mimic some of the effects that we see in mice, in humans as well. But, you know, just to be clear, there are no clinically approved treatments or any breakthrough discoveries that went through a rigorous process of being tested, you know, in a double-blinded, placebo-controlled fashion that have shown benefits. There's a lot of people who try to sell you something that they say will, you know, make you young or keep you young, but that's not, you know, really approved by the FDA or other regulatory agencies. But to get to your point, I think, I mean, there are some indications and, you know, just for full disclosure, we started a company and worked with one of the big plasma product companies who uh, have run a relatively large study in patients with Alzheimer's disease. So what they did is they remove old blood or the liquid fraction, which is called plasma from patients, not all of it, but in a process that is called apheresis clinically. So they remove this over several days, uh, portions of it, and then they infuse a fraction of plasma from, from donors, from a pool of donors that are on the average 35 years of age. So they're, you know, by all standards, they're much younger than those patients with Alzheimer's disease. And what they saw in about 450 people or so that was actually blinded, that there are improvements in function and in memory capacity But it was, oddly enough, only in people with moderate Alzheimer's disease and not those with mild. And so it still requires, you know, a larger study with, you know, several thousand people, but it looks promising. Um, Now, those people, you know, were not assessed for regeneration or rejuvenation of multiple different organs and tissues, which would be very interesting because in the mouse studies, the young blood or the young plasma actually has effects on all organs that people have looked at, almost all organs that people have reported. But uh, they looked only on this, you know, very specific cognitive aspects related to Alzheimer's disease. It looks interesting, promising potentially, but again, more work needs to be done. So I wanted to turn next to a question. So I I don't know if you've seen, there's a Netflix series called The Good Place, which is this kind of comedy and drama about this group of four people who end up in the afterlife and they're in, they never really call it hell, but in effect, they're in hell and then they eventually are able to get into heaven. But when they get into heaven, they discover that it's not actually very heavenly. It's been designed poorly. And so then the four of them are charged with basically redesigning heaven to try to make it something that's meaningful and beautiful. And, you know, they go through this series of sort of iterating and trying to figure out how to make heaven meaningful. But the point that I want to get to is that the final change that they make, the thing that they do that makes it so that heaven can actually be beautiful and meaningful is they make it so that heaven ends. So they, you know, it never really describes how, but they make this sort of like portal. And whenever somebody who has made it to heaven feels like they have fulfilled their purpose there, then they can pass through the portal. And then the show doesn't really tell us what happens after that. But in any case, their experience in that version of the afterlife ends. That's always been very striking to me, right? That that was actually the thing, because they're already in a place where they can literally, the way the show is conceived, they can experience anything they want in heaven, right? There's like a simulation room where they can go and have any experience they want, any number of times, whatever, whatever. But all of that is empty and flat until they know that it's going to end at some point. And then that's the thing that actually imbues the rest of the experience and the beauty and everything else with meaning. And so 
I guess all of that is by way of saying, let's say that you just had a scientific magic wand and you could wave it and tomorrow you could have all of the experiments and whatever that you needed so that now you have a product that will extend human life from a common maximum of around 100 years to 200 years or 300 years or even more than that, right? If you could do that, would you? Like, do you think it would be a good thing for people to live for 200 years or 300 years? Or like, how would you even think about, I guess, the philosophical and moral implications of doing that if it were possible? That's, again, the philo philosophical part of the discussion. I mean, that comes with a lot of ifs and buts, right? Because certainly we have bigger problems right now on this planet than, you know, doubling people's lifespan. And the question would be, you know, how selective would this be? Certainly for me, for me alone, you know, I definitely wouldn't want to live 200 years and nobody around me has the same opportunity. But really what I'd rather have is, you know, 90 years of good health and, you know, that I wake up in the morning and nothing aches and I don't forget anything until I'm 90. If I could achieve that, that's what I would want. Are we going to live longer? I mean, we've we already doubled lifespan or almost tripled it, you know, from earliest records of people, probably average lifespan was around 30 or 40. Most people would die of infectious diseases and things like that. So if that change comes within a year or 10 years, even it would destroy humanity. I think we could not handle that. So hopefully we have time to you know, increase our lifespan. And it may be 200, but hopefully it's not 200 years in, you know, 10 years, but it's 200 years in 50 years or in 100 years we live to 200. And it will be available to everybody. But it, of course, comes with so many other challenges and problems, right? Resources, and we, we have to figure out a lot of challenges and problems ahead of us. So, you know, I often ask this question if I give talks, who wants to live forever? And it's, it's odd. Sometimes it's younger people who raise their hands and sometimes it's the older people who raise their hands. I still haven't figured out what, how many hands I'm going to see. Sometimes nobody says they want to live longer. They want to live forever. And sometimes people say they want to live forever. And, you know, so much of, as you said, of our identity, of our determination, of our motivation is driven, I think, by the limiting time we have. If we had all the time in the world, would we even try to accomplish something? We would always defer it to tomorrow because, you know, I can go study when I'm 100. Why should I study now? I don't know. I'm curious because you said that you believe if this change, let's say life extension was possible and it, it happens too soon, you believe that it would destroy our society. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, it would not be available to everybody, right? You know, we have not been able to distribute our achievements to the whole planet in almost anything, maybe cell phones, most people can get now, but any other of, you know, whether it's uh, healthcare achievements or economic sta status and things like that, you know, it's pretty uneven. So, you know, if some people all of a sudden could live to 200 years or longer and others would only have 70 or 80 years, I think you would have wars breaking out. And I just can't imagine, you know, what would happen. Wow. Yeah, there's also the other thing about how we were talking about whether or not it would be desirable to, you, to have this product on the market that works, that effectively extends life. But then you realize that if that was an option to extend life, then if you did not use that, if you did not provide that, I don't know what you call it, product, treatment mm -hmm. to someone, then you're actually depriving them of potential life. In which case, wouldn't you have a moral obligation once this is available to give it to everybody? <laughs> you know, just the same way like medications that, you know, that, that currently treat diseases. Like if, if yeah, you have I'm not a physician. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to answer that question. But it is a question we can't answer. And, you know, it's interesting because extending lifespan is not identical to extending health span, right? So it's possible. I mean, you could imagine a scenario where your body would hang in there for another 50 years, 
you would be demented, but your body would not give up. And we could not, as a society, turn off or, you know, we wouldn't even have to turn off anything because your body would still function really well, but your brain would be gone. So you would basically need all around 24-hour care. And, you know, we have no right to take your life, even though you're not a person anymore by all the standards we have of identity and being able to communicate with the environment. So th there are possibilities that you would extend, you know, I mean, that would be awful, right? You would extend lifespan, but you would be totally sick, whether it's demented or it could also be some other tissues, you know, that they keep you alive somehow, but it's not worth living. So both you and Henry have started to allude to the distribution of any prospective neuroprotective or neurorecovery drug. You know, I have watched with great interest over the past year or two as the GLP-1 antagonists like Ozempic and Wagovi and whatever have become, well, as we've had better evidence that they clearly lead to very significant and sustained weight loss. And now we're starting to have, although much less mature, but still starting to have evidence that they also lead to other health benefits that you would predict, right, from weight loss, that patients who take them have fewer cardiovascular events. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, other things down the line as well. But all of this is just to say that as the incredible effects of these medications, at least insofar as we know right now, have become evident, that is actually leading to a whole snarl of questions about who gets them? When do they get them? Who pays for them? How long do you take them? How do you demonstrate that you have a real need? How do you differentiate or should you even differentiate between people who want them mostly for what an insurer might view to be sort of aesthetic reasons, but that could also be at least psychologically important versus somebody who has, you know, already has cardiovascular disease or whatever. How do you think about when to use them for prevention versus, you know, a person who already has a disease that has been demonstrated by blood pressure or uh, cardiac catheterization or what? have you. So all of that is to say that if that's becoming an issue with these drugs, which are very important, but which nonetheless have primarily metabolic effects, one can only imagine what would happen if there were sort of an analogous drug, but now we're talking about protecting the brain instead of shrinking the waistline or what have you. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you might think about those distribution issues if such a drug were to exist. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, actually, glad you mentioned these drugs. I mean, they have potentially also cognitive benefits. They have very good phase two results. And there's a large phase three trial now ongoing. So it, it might well be possible that this is almost like, you know, one of these rejuvenating drugs or maybe not rejuvenating, but slowing the aging process to some extent, because, it has all these benefits, which are in part metabolic, to keep the body fitter and less susceptible to disease, to age-related disease. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you talk about how life extension would impact social inequities, perhaps increase social inequities. And this is pure speculation, but really interesting possibilities about how differences in life extension or even just life extension in general would actually change our social identities, our relationships with people. Because right now there are, you know, we recognize people of different generations, we recognize, you know, older people, elderly people, we respect our elders and things like that. And there's like very rigid social structures constructed around that. Let's say we can live now to 500 years, all of those relationships would have to be redefined, right? Mm -hmm. I find that aspect of it really fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. And that's why I say, you know, hopefully it will take a long time to achieve these extensions because I, I think we could not handle it, right? <laughs> it's so complicated on a societal level, as you, as you said, you know, you, you would potentially, I mean, unless you, your brain becomes better and better to keep all these relationships that you make, you know, we say you can maybe, you know, maintain a thousand different relations or people that you met in your life. Well, if you live 500 years, you're going to meet thousands, thousands of people and you can't remember your children potentially, right? Whoa. <laughs> 
So as we're getting ready to wrap up here, you know, I attend on the wards in the hospital a few times a year. And when I do that, sometimes we'll admit to the hospital, a person who is 90, 95, hundred years old, who, you know, has whatever acute illness is bringing them into the hospital, but otherwise is incredibly healthy and completely cognitively intact. And sometimes when we do that, we will ask them, what's your secret, right? And I've heard everything from a glass of red wine a day to dark chocolate every day to marrying my particular spouse to all kinds of things. But for you, as, as somebody who studies the aging of the brain, and that's really you know where you have made your mark in research, what would be your answer to that question? What do you think is, if there is a secret or a group of secrets that people could try to utilize to live longer and feel better, what would you say those would be? Yeah, I don't know. I have the secret sauce here, but I think, you know, and it's, it's sort of probably a bit used up already, but live in the moment and, you know, at any age, you know, try to make the best of what you have and cherish the people around you. I mean, we know what is bad for you and what is good for your body more or less, but it's hard to keep those up, but try as much as you can. And again, you know, enjoy what you have and and try to make the best out of it. But I think a lot of this exceptional longevity, uh, these resilient people, I think a lot of this is genetic. And unfortunately, you can't do much about it, right? I mean, you can exercise, you can eat healthy, and you can sort of get probably 5-10% more than what you would get if you didn't live healthy and and eat healthy. But besides that, I think live in the moment. Well, I think that's a sobering but ultimately optimistic outlook. Because while yes, while a lot of how long we live is influenced by genetics and therefore out of our control, I love that your response to that is to focus on the internal, what is within your control, and how you choose to spend the time you do have. We've touched on this a few times already here, But it's about making the most of our relationships, which, in the end, is in large part what defines us and what makes this life meaningful. With that, we want to thank you, Tony, for joining us and sharing your unique blend of scientific rigor and philosophical inquiry. It's been truly eye-opening. Thank you. Very much enjoyed it. Thank you for joining our conversation on this week's episode of The Doctor's Art. You can find program notes and transcripts of all episodes at thedoctorsart.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review our show, available for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also encourage you to share the podcast with any friends or colleagues who you think might enjoy the program. And if you know of a doctor, patient, or anyone working in healthcare who would love to explore meaning in medicine with us on the show, feel free to leave a suggestion in the comments. I'm Henry Baer. And I'm Tyler Johnson. We hope you can join us next time. Until then, be well.